0: Welcome back to Shad on TV, Game of Thrones edition, the unofficial podcast companion piece to the queen of all HBO shows, Game of Thrones. I'm one of your hosts, Gene Lyons, and alongside me is my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert.
1: Good evening.
0: And this is our fan mail episode, where we look back on this week's Game of Thrones and provide our feedback on the top listener emails and voicemails for the week. This week's episode was episode three of season eight, entitled The Long Night. You spent an hour listening to our ideas on Tuesday's Deep Dive. Now it's our turn to hear from you.
1: So I, I know we say it every week, but the the numbers and the quality of the emails we're getting are, it's staggering. I, I took a picture of the Trello uh, card that we use to try to sort, vote, move things around. Uh, Gene and I were fighting here for about an hour, just sorting through these and making some hard final cuts. So thank you again, everybody who takes the time to write and call in. We appreciate it. Uh, and if you don't hear yours on the podcast, please go to the website and check them out. But amazing stuff!
0: Yeah, the gap between great emails and shitty emails has really closed. It is hard to make these decisions, so I do apologize if you didn't make the pod. But nearly everything was golden. I mean, it, it was a hard time. I wish we had the time to read all of them uh, and do like an eight-hour pod. But they are on the website. I have started uh, responding to them on shoutontv.com. And we don't want to take any more time up uh, before getting started with them. So, Big D, take us to the small council.
2: Shame. Shame. Shame.
0: All right, the first set of emails we had were sent around the Night King's death. And we got a ton of opinions about Arius killing him and just the way he went down. The first one comes from Andy S. And Andy S. writes, I have to disagree with Big D and tell you all that I did not at all expect the turnaround when I saw the Night King strolling into the wood with all of his lieutenants. Yeah, he's walking extra slow because he's confident as fuck, and he should be. Big D said he's out in the open and only one arrow could stop him. But could it? The archers didn't have Valerian steel arrow tips. You're operating under the assumption that Dragon Glass could kill him. But we still don't know if that's true. He was created with Dragon Glass, so he might be immune to that like he is fire. I heard the piano score and was instantly reminded of the season six finale where Cersei blows up the sept and Tommen commits suicide. That's one of the only times they ever used piano in the score of an episode. So when I heard it here, I thought, oh my God, they're really gonna do it. They're going to kill everyone. It looked so bleak and the writers are so good at getting us to change our feelings toward characters, i.e. Jamie and Theon, that I thought for sure every single character we saw in this episode was dead. The army would continue to march south and in the end, we'd all be rooting for Cersei just because we wanted the living to survive. Also, to the show's credit, I 100% forgot that Arya went running out of the room with Melisandra and the Hound. She literally came out of nowhere, and Big D, I'm with you. I hope they show us a flashback moment of how the hell she came to be flying through the air toward the Night King. That shit was epic, and they fucking got me. And that's from Andy S.
1: Okay, so Andy, you said that I'm assuming that Dragonglass will kill the Night King. We do know the glass does work because in season three, episode eight, when Sam kills the White Walker with a dragon glass dagger. So we know it works. Everything else, we're just making assumptions. We don't know. Just because Valerian Steel kills the White Walkers, we don't know if it'll work on the Night King. We've seen them walk through fire before, so it was logical that maybe fire wouldn't kill them. But everything's up in the air. There could be you know a, a, a core difference between the Night King and and the White Walkers. Everything's an assumption.
0: Now, listener Ryan McNamara wrote in to say he's not so sure that the Night King is dead. Uh, he said, you know, maybe the Night King is just this elemental force, but to fuel some speculation, uh, which should be taken with a grain of salt, because it's possible that his Twitter account was hacked. But Vladimir Furdik, the actor who portrays the Night King, uh, had a post on his official Twitter page that basically said, how does the Night King turn Craster's babies he touches them how did he turn Viserion he touched him and what did he do to Bran and other people have noticed that the mark on Bran's arm might be like a horcrux in Harry Potter Uh, what do you think of that big D? you think that the Night King is dead dead or there's a chance that he might live on in Bran or somewhere else
1: I hope it's not like a big game of tag like tag you're the (laughs) Night King and then you go around for a couple thousand years tag you're it Yeah, he did mark Bran in the in the projection, but that wasn't they weren't physically in the same space. If he had touched him like in the courtyard under the the godswood, then I would have said, okay, it's possible. But I don't know if you could touch somebody in a vision.
0: Yeah, it's not mono. Come on. Thanks, Andy and Ryan, for your emails. Uh, Next up, we're going to talk a little bit about predictions, uh, starting with an email from Ashley Davis. And Ashley Davis writes in quick reflection on episode three. I had no hope. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to watch the next three episodes. I didn't care about Cersei. I didn't care about what main characters died. I just wanted humanity to somehow make it. My emotions were drained. Then Arya Stark saved the day and my sanity. I'm pumped and amazed. So let's talk future. Daenerys has just lost the Dothraki almost completely. Grey Worm had to sacrifice the Unsullied to protect the retreat. All we have left is the main characters basically with a few stragglers from each army represented in the battle, minus the dead. Before the night went dark and the battle began, let us remember that Daenerys was struggling to gain the loyalty of the North. She was being arrogant and power hungry, and she had two large armies and two healthy dragons. From what I can see, the North has more survivors than anyone else, so now Dany has no choice. She has to come to an agreement with Sansa and promise the North that if they fight for her against Cersei, they will never bend the knee again. So here are my predictions for the next three episodes. Episode four, take a body count, regroup, come to an agreement on who rules what, Solve any residual rifts from before the Battle of Winterfell. Episode 5, The Final War Cersei's demise, Danny's thirst for power, possibly getting her killed. Episode 6, I 100% believe that Sansa will have the North along with Arya and Bran. If Danny lives, John will stand by her. If she dies, I believe John will die fighting for her as well. His family in the North are safe, so he will stand for Danny. Prepared to lose some more beloved characters, Ashley from Little Rock, Arkansas.
1: So I think she's missing one big thing. Bran, just because the Night King is dead. The Three-Eyed Raven storyline is not. Bran has to continue to learn to use his powers. You know, there's all kinds of crazy theories, including some of mine on what he's going to do or how he might influence events of the past. But you're not going to take Bran, a major character, and just wheel him out in the courtyard. And for three episodes, he's just going to sit there. You know he's going to do something that affects everything after. So I, I think that Ashley's got a good framework, but there's some big pieces in there that are,
0: still have to be worked out. I mean, why not? He sat there during the entire Battle of Winterfell. Exactly. Why should that change now? Thanks, Ashley, for your email. Uh, next up, we have one from Paula Price, and she's got a little bit of different idea. Uh, Paula says, hi there. I really love the image of Sansa and Tyrion when they were in the crypt together side by side. The dialogue that they had prior to that scene established that they both had thought through their what-ifs regarding how things would have turned out if they stayed together. It almost seems like they were unsure of whether it could still work out between them. While they were in the crypt side-by-side, it immediately made me think of medieval monarchs laid to rest together in their crypts. I attached one of Henry VII interred alongside Elizabeth of York. Could Sansa and Tyrion's side-by-side tableau in episode 3 be a foreshadowing of them winning the throne and being interred together after a long and successful rule of the Seven Kingdoms. And that comes from Paula Price from Laurel, Maryland.
1: So I really like this one. I think that Tyrion and Sansa would make a great pair because their, their strengths are the other's weakness. Tyrion being very intelligent, uh, he said his weakness is he always underestimates people. Then you have Sansa, who was taught in the Littlefinger school of, of treachery, who said, think of what somebody could do. What would be the worst thing they could do? And always think of those possibilities. Never, You'll th- never then be surprised. So I think the two of them together would cover all the bases. You know, Tyrion's got the south. Sansa's got the north. You could make one big happy
0: Seven Kingdoms. Paula, I'm glad you wrote in on this one because – I watched this episode, and at the same time, I had this weird gut feeling during that scene that they looked like monarchs, that they looked like leaders together. And there is a tone of that as well in the fact that when they're having the discussion in the crypts about the fact that they can't do anything, when Sansa says we got to really look at ourselves and and be brave in that way uh, to understand there's nothing we can do in this battle, uh, what they can do is rule and rule effectively. And I agree with Big D that they could be a great power pair here. And something did feel right about it. It just, it it sat in my gut and I I felt like I knew that's the way it was gonna turn out. Maybe we're just crazy, Paula, but I hope you're right. Uh, Thanks for writing in. Next up, we have a few emails about the tactics employed. Now we did a big deep dive with Big D uh, about the tactics that were employed in Game of Thrones and the Battle of Winterfell and how that compares to best practices of the US Army. Now we have an email here uh, from Steven Cesar who writes in, here's an overview of season eight, episode three I got from a fighter pilot. I thought it was worth sharing, enjoy. John and Danny clearly needed a few more sorties focusing on formation, defensive ACM, air combat maneuvering, and IMC, instrument meteorological conditions, intercepts. They were chasing a single bogey through the clouds without mutual support, which led to the loss of an airborne asset, even though the bogey was wounded in the process. The bogey was definitely a factor later, particularly for John. Additionally, effective formation with visual mutual support would have reduced the kill chain against the bogey, which would have allowed more time over the target area, providing much-needed close air support. Finally, the friendly location marking plan was insufficient for the prevailing weather. It's easy to blame the forecasters, but effective contingency planning would have brought out reduced visibility and low ceilings as a planning factor, as favorable weather and good visibility are identified by JP309.3 as conditions for effective CAS. All in all... Danny figured out this was going to be a low war and went with low show tactics against the enemy lines of troops with great effect. This could have been intensified had they not wasted so much time blind from their wingman and digging through crap weather for the bogey. Persistent CAS fires could have given ground forces sufficient breathing room to gain the initiative. Thus, a better thought out disposition of forces... And proper use of a combined arms offensive with synchronized indirect fire and CAS assets may have prevented even the necessity of the individual valorous efforts of Arya at the end, hashtag lovesave, and the sacrifices of Ed Talit, goodnight Lord Commander, Jorah, hashtag zone forever, still my hero, Liana, nice giant kill kiddo, shit of legends right there, Beric, probably should have not thrown his flaming sword, I immediately regret my decision. Theon waited his whole life to fight like that. Come on, bro. Hashtag late bloomer. Why'd you wait so long to swing a polearm? And of course, Melisandre, who decided to go out on a high note, I guess. Let's hope Arya finds that collar so she can live forever and set stuff on fire with her hands. With the bulk of the sword swingers safely behind a larger trench, per my observation above, friendly forces could have exhausted the artillery and run the dragon's Winchester before serious losses started to pile up, which of course they needed to fight later because their plans sucked and the enemy HVT- high-value target, brought them back. On my count, one horse lived through the initial cavalry charge. That was enough for me to realize they suck at planning. Derp. I'd write Jorah and Barrack up for the Medal of Honor, Arya for at least a silver star with a V device, perhaps a service cross might be more appropriate, and Danny for a distinguished flying cross, crappy ACM notwithstanding. Overall, the commander's intent was met, but largely because of actions of a single Delta operator, Arya. The battle was a dismal failure, largely... Due to a lack of planning, I grade them a D plus for militariness and only because they won in the end at a sheer dumb look and one badass sticking them with the pointy end. Even so, it made for some good TV. Steven Cesar.
1: Hearing this breakdown, I want this to be an audio book. I want this to be a children's book or a a graphic comic novel. it's, It's beautiful. And only somebody who spent their life in the military could have written it
0: as well as he did. I just want everyone to know that I read that entire thing with a motorcycle helmet and a vacuum tube attached to it, just for authenticity's sake. Thanks for writing in, Stephen. Next up, we have one from Nick B., who's focusing more on Jon Snow's tactics. Uh, He says, Jets, first off, if you're ever hanging with Jon Snow outside of Winterfell and he starts running, run the other way. From his one-man charge of the Battle of the Bastards to his head-on attack of the Night King, Jon Snow never wants to be told the odds when he is on the fields outside Winterfell. Though I think his charge at the Night King was reasonable, given it seemed like the only answer to ending the battle. Do you all think this was smarter than his charge at the Battle of the Bastards? Has Jon Snow started to know something instead of nothing? Also, what about Danny fighting beside Jorah? Not to make Jean cry again, but the majority of the dead she was fighting were the reanimated corpses of her Dothraki and Unsullied. This had to have been like the end of Old Yeller over and over for her both terrifying and emotionally crippling to have to watch her warriors die than have to kill them by hand again. Great episode. Keep up the good work. Nick B.
1: Well, I think the charge in the Battle of the Bastards, he just got lucky. He didn't know everybody was coming up behind him to support him. In this one, he's got no better option. Once he starts raising his hands, John's had the experience. He knows what that means. When the Night King was out in the dock at Hardhome, so he knew I have maybe 30 seconds to close the gap. I thought at the end, maybe at least one last ditch effort would have been to try to maybe throw Longclaw and try to get him in the chest or something with it. But you had no other option. you Either that or run away. But there was enough dead that you would have been encircled within seconds.
0: Yeah, people complain about this scene and Theon's death and the why would you run at the Night King with no strategy? You have no choice. I mean, Theon was in the same boat where it's like, you're not gonna be able to fight him. He's got a ton of lieutenants. The only thing you can do is get to him as fast as possible. Maybe chuck that spear, maybe run at him. And you know the spear might not be effective, but again, you could stand there and die, or you can, you know, try to die a hero, and that's exactly what he did. He took his chance.
1: See, but my only problem with him was he he tried the old like Don Quixote, where he's like charging. How about you go a little bit slower, start moving the tip left to right? Night King doesn't know where you're gonna go. I could have olayed him. That was like a bullfighter. You knew that Theon was going to go right. Night King goes to the, his right. It's over. Take your time. Go slow and, and move your weapon. Night King might have taken it right in the chest.
0: Thanks for your email, Nick B. And great observation with Danny uh, fighting the Unsullied and the Dothraki. I didn't notice that uh, when I watched it. That's some heavy shit, man. The next biggest subject that people covered in their emails to the small council was about Leanna Mormont. Listener Adam Webb wrote in and said, the character I want to focus on is Leanna Mormont. Last week, I believe one of you said that there's no way they kill her because all it would do is upset the audience. I feel that Leanna's death was really the only fitting way to kill her. She died fiercely and ferociously fighting to the very end. I feel that many would have forgiven her if she ran from battle when she realized that she was only a child. However, she stayed and fought and she didn't fight just any old white. She fought an undead giant and she killed it. She was gruesomely crushed in his hand, but she killed a freaking giant. If any character was deserving of such an epic death, it would be none other than Leanna Mormont. It was the perfect way to end a character that was known for being a proud and ferocious leader. She lived up to every word her character said, and she will be missed. Thanks again, guys. Adam Webb. So I
1: don't know if people know this, but the the character in the show of Leanna Mormont was only supposed to be in the one episode where John is going around trying to collect Bannerman to fight ramsey and the battle of the bastards she was so kick-ass that they said we have to get her in in more episodes so the eight episodes she was in was an extension of just that one little interaction she was supposed to have people fell in love with her and the show my take on it is they used her as a sacrificial plot offering they knew that they weren't going to kill and we'll discuss this later with plot armor that they weren't going to kill any big characters so they said hmm People are going to get pissed off. We're not killing any big people. Let's kill the girl. Everybody loves her. I'm surprised they didn't also kill Ghost, because those two would have masked the fact that really nobody important died.
0: And listener Behrang Behvandi wrote in a differing opinion of that death. He said that Leanna Mormont's scene felt forced to him. We know the army of the dead doesn't care who you are, they just slaughter whatever comes in their path. So, why would a mindless zombie giant who is just crushing everyone at its feet stop everything it's doing to pick up Liana, look her in the eyes, and I'm not quite sure about this part, but try to eat her? There were Mm -hmm. much higher stakes at hand than Liana, a fan favorite character with lots of memes around her, getting herself an honorable death, which didn't make any sense at all. And I'm inclined to agree on this one. I didn't really think about it at the time because the effect was so cool. Leanna's such a great character. I'm like, he swatted her away. He's got bigger things on his mind. Why would he then stop and pick her up, You know, drive her really close? I thought he was going to put her up his nose or something. And then get, I mean, you got to figure, I think she's 12 or 13 years old. Her arm's not that long. You know close got to get it to the eyeball? Maybe it was just the fact that out of all this battle going on, this strange thing, this little child is standing there, and that's a curiosity
1: and and i want to clarify i loved her i could have i could have seen a spin off with just her i think she was great the actress was great and i understand they wanted her to go out in a, in a blaze of glory so i'm i'm not bothered by the way she went out but again it's not why why was the zombie giant going to eat her it reminded me of the video game rampage you know where there's the wolf the the is it it's a a flying wolf a lizard yeah and they would just grab people out of the window hold them and bite their heads but it was badass, and she went down to blaze of glory. I'll tell you, the legend of Leanna Mormont, that's going to carry on for, for thousands of years.
0: And the actress that played Leanna, uh in the HBO behind-the-scenes feature uh, did say that she knew she wasn't going to get on the Iron Throne, that that wasn't going to be her ending. <laughs> yeah. So she's like, if I couldn't be on the throne, I at least want to have a badass death, and she got it. She did. Thanks for writing in. Uh, next up, we have one from Connor Brooks about Cat's Paw. Connor writes in, I just want to say I love the podcast and appreciate everything. This episode definitely had its flaws, but I felt like one of the things they got right was the weapon that was used to kill the Night King. The Valyrian steel dagger basically began this entire story. After Bran was pushed from the window, the blade was used to attempt to kill him. The original owner of that blade became a huge question and led to Catelyn Stark arresting Tyrion, which then forced Jaime to attack Ned in the streets, preventing him from leaving King's Landing. It was then used by Baelish to betray Ned in the Red Keep, and the dominoes start to fall. Arya was gifted the dagger by Bran in the exact same place she killed the Night King. She even used a similar dagger drop move against Brienne of Tarth during their sparring session. And that same dagger, of course, was used to kill Peter Baelish, who started literally everything beginning with the murder of Jon Arryn. This all is probably pretty obvious, but I felt like it was the right thing to do for a Game of Thrones story, and I'm confident it won't be the last time we see this dagger used importantly. That comes from Connor Brooks. One of the fascinating things about these Valerian steel weapons is the fact they have these long histories, their path through houses, they have biographies of their own. And that is something I, I would be interested in seeing. Also, it's a great way that the show and the books can differ, but still have some undercurrents that stay the same. You know, Cat's Paw played a huge role in the books, plays a huge role in the show, but its story could be changed slightly without changing the character of the weapon. Uh, so I think it's a great observations, Connor, and there's definitely this one weapon weaving throughout all the tales of Game of Thrones. Uh, and that explains why it appears on magazine covers. It's like a character of its own.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that this uh, dagger has not taken its last life.
0: It's a spooky prophecy. And speaking of prophecy, we got one from <laughs> Luke Beggs, uh, who writes in, I'd like to address the criticisms regarding the fact that the episode was too easy for the living and not enough of our main characters died. Firstly, I think it's important to see how the deaths that did occur will affect the main characters. Sam, after convincing Ed and John to let him fight, will be haunted by Ed laying down his life to save him. John will be deeply hurt when he finds his black brother and right hand man Ed has died, in addition to Theon, who was like a brother to him. Sansa, who clearly had immense feelings for Theon, also will mourn. Danny's closest advisor and likely the man who loved her the most died protecting her and couldn't even mutter his final, I love you. How will the Hound be affected by the death of Beric Dondarrion? While we might not have had strong feelings for these characters who have fallen, the other characters certainly do. Secondly, I feel like if a single main character had died, like Brienne, Jamie, Sansa, Grey Worm, this episode would have been labeled as the show's best ever. And I think people hold the show to a different standard of death counts. So the fact that it's being judged so hard on this is something that should be noted. Also, the living in no way got off easy. The Dothraki and Unsullied are decimated, and I think Rhaegal is severely injured. How will Dany's power dynamic change now that most of her forces are gone? Will Jon or Sansa make a play? If anything, this episode makes me anticipate the next three even more. Keep doing what you do, and I can't wait for the next three weeks' podcast. Falar Morghulis, Luke.
1: Yeah, I like that take. The, the only problem is we're running out of time. We have three episodes left. We spent episode two primarily focusing on the relationships between these characters is there really time enough now for them to highlight each of these pairings how the death of the the one that they loved is going to affect them going forward i mean i don't think they can suffer any more pain than they already have
0: now on the flip side of that argument you have the people who were complaining about plot armor and not enough people dying Uh, one of those was uh robert manriquez who wrote in and said, if you did not touch upon the plot armor, I would have been extremely disappointed. I'm actually at work chopping onions, listening to you finally talk about it and breathing a sigh of relief. How can a fan not feel this battle was anticlimactic? This battle with the Night King has been brewing since the opening scene of season one, episode one. And in an hour and a half, it's over. And the most notable dead main character is Jorah. The episode is beautiful. I don't complain about the darkness because it's utter chaos and added to the suspense and the feeling that I was in the battle. I thought it looked amazing, but this was the big bad. Sure, Cersei is a dangerous bitch, but this fucking guy raises the dead. I braced myself for a heartbreaking episode and was completely underwhelmed by the plot armor. On top of that, the shitty strategy of let's just rush our giant mosh pit of fireflies on horses into the dark with bad decisions on the front lines, I feel like there should have been more dire consequences. The show has never hesitated to brutally and unexpectedly kill off main characters. And the biggest battle of the series and TV history, all the main characters are safe and sound. I was highly disappointed. That being said, you guys are awesome, and I look forward to listening every week. Please keep it up. Rob.
1: So I took a different approach to this because, you know, it's easy to say there's plot armor, but I wanted to try to find something that I could quantifiably track and say definitively if this happened or not. So I went back and I pulled up on IMDb and said, I want to see characters and the number of episodes that they've been in. So out of there's roughly 350 characters who have been in more than one episode. So the top 25 characters who are still living, and then you pull out the three that were safe from dying this episode, which was Kyburn at 25, Brawn at 17, and Cersei at two. That leaves us with 23 possible kills. They ended up killing number eight on the list, which was Jorah, number nine on the list, number 18 and 22. And Barrick, which was 67, and Leanna Mormont, 91. They didn't kill anybody with over 52 episodes. I mean, Jamie, Arya, Sansa, Jon, Daenerys, Tyrion, those are all the top. Then you got in the 40s, you got Sam, Varys, Bran, Brienne of Tarth, Davos is at 39, Miss Sandy's at 37, The Hound's at 36. You didn't kill any of those. So out of the top 23, that was the best you could do. So it makes sense that they had to throw in Leanna Mormont, because even though she's at number 91 and only eight episodes, people care about her. But they undoubtedly protected anyone who has been a primary character in the show.
0: And people will say that it's unhealthy that we have this bloodlust, but I think it's more just an adherence to the rules of the show, which is when we first were watching and you go back to season one, or you go back to the Reigns of Castamere, we realized that when someone would say what makes this show special, we would say anybody is fair game. Anybody could die at any time from something small, something big. Call Drogo, he gets scratched. We think he's fine. He deteriorates and like, he's going to pull through though, right? I mean, he's He's a fucking call. Like, he's ever, he's this huge character. No, you know, he dies too. And so that idea of Valar Morgulis, like all men must die, uh, has kind of been thrown out the window. I agree, Robert, that that's unfortunately the way the show is going. But Big D, I look at it in a very different way as a show. For me, there was a definite departure right around season, I don't know, five, where I said one era of Game of Thrones has sort of ended and another had had risen, Right dragons, magic. It's more fantasy action now than political intrigue and drama. And I can accept it as that. So if somebody said, hey, there's a show called Game of Thrones, it actually kicked off at season five. And they're like, it's this action fantasy show where you've got people fighting the dead and there's these amazing heroes and dragons and magic. I'd be like, cool. like I'm down. Let's watch it. It's still a very, very good show. It's just a different show. And I'm okay with that.
1: Uh, what I hope that they're doing is they're lulling us into a false sense of security that we keep getting the last minute saves. I hope in the battle to come that we're like, Oh, look, who's going to come save them. Oh shit. Jamie's dead. Oh, look, who's going to save Jon Snow. Oh shit. He's dead. They've now got us so punch drunk that I'm not going to believe anybody's actually going to die. If they throw three or four of them at me pretty quick, uh, I might pass out.
0: Then they are going to give like Sam, Tarly, and Varys like a good action oh. sequence. They're going to be like, oh, this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Rob, for your email. Uh, next up, we have one from Andrea Schultz. We obviously saw Danny's army get completely obliterated in episode three, and it seems there are not many people left in the North to wage a war against Cersei. So I've been wondering for quite a while now whether we'll see Dario and the Second Sons again. What are your thoughts? Will Danny rally them? Also, what happened to the Knights of the Eyrie? I can't quite remember. Will they be back in on the action? Anyway, I can't wait for the final three episodes and to see what kind of fuck shit storm Cersei is cooking up. She is next level and so cunning in the same way that Jon is dense and absolutely underestimates his opponents every time. Let's hope he finally learns from his mistakes in previous battles. Third time's the charm, right? And outsmarts Cersei. Maybe he could listen to Sansa for once. Anyway, love to hear what you think. All the way from Brisbane, Australia, Andrea Schultz.
1: So... I hope the next episode they don't all of a sudden, you know, that there's 400 Dothraki that survived and, you know, maybe 300 Unsullied. We pretty much saw everybody get killed. So the army of the North now consists of probably enough that you could fill that castle courtyard. So they have to find some help. Yeah. They have two dragons, but maybe the blackfish comes back. You know, we haven't seen him. Maybe uh Howlin Reed comes back, you know, with some troops, maybe the the second sons or you know maybe uh, yara's out there recruiting somebody i mean we still what's going on in dorn there's still soldiers there even though the leadership's up in the air but they're definitely going to need some help they can't do it alone with two dragons
0: all right next up we have an email from mike b and mike b writes in it was definitely helpful to have melisandre light stuff up and especially get the trenches But I also expected something a little bit more from her in that sense. She birthed a shadow monster to kill Renly for Stannis, and she returned to Volantis last season to do what? Gain the ability to light stuff on fire? Have more visions to know what Arya was the one to kill the Night King and end the long night that wasn't so long? That being said, I thought her peaceful death and rest was a beautiful scene. And that comes from Mike B.
1: My problem wasn't her ability to light things on fire. It was with her initiative, with her drive, like... The dead are, they're breaching your last obstacle. And she is strolling out there, her hands intertwined. The Unsullied are guarding her flanks. They're getting killed. And she's taking her time. And maybe it's because she was nervous. Because the first few times she chants the incantation, three or four times it doesn't work. Then she starts getting a bit nervous. Maybe it was the Lord Light fucking with her. But finally it goes up. But she just took her sweet-ass time. Come on, Move.
0: There definitely was a moment where she was wondering <laughs> if it was going to work or not. I like that.
1: Oops, I, I shouldn't have wasted my juice on the damned Dothraki.
0: All right, next one comes from Johnny Wingnall, who writes in, Hi, having only read the first Game of Thrones book, I was wondering roughly when the books ended in the TV series. Do we have anything of season seven and eight in the already published books? And I know they won't want to admit it, but the book-only crowd have had it ruined for them, at least a little bit. Love the podcast. Keep it up. Johnny Wingnall. Johnny, I also uh, am only on book two, so I haven't read the whole series. But from what I understand, the books ended right around season five uh, and some parts of season six reference back to the books. And then basically season seven and eight are almost all original stuff, which is sprinkles of the books. So we are way off the page at this point. And there have been some people noticing that George R.R. R. Martin, who normally endorses the series and goes out and promotes it, uh, hasn't done that so much for season eight. Uh, So this might be a huge departure for him, his vision.
1: But I think this is perfect plot armor for George. This is like a dry run. Let's say the double D's fuck it up. This the series ends in a way that's not rewarding. People are upset. People are crying. Why did you do this? He could just go around, call an audible and just do a completely different ending and be like, hey, they didn't want to listen to me.
0: Yeah, listen, uh, the final book (laughs) is going to be a coloring book, actually. (laughs) Fuck all of you.
1: No, just make the ending completely different.
0: Thanks, Johnny, for your email. Uh, Next up, we have one from one of our favorites, Ken L, uh, who we labeled a fantasy lawyer uh, on the last episode. And he writes it. He says, "Uh, hi, chat hosts. It's Ken L. Once again, thanks for including my email in your podcast last week. I might take a week off on analysis this week, but for now, I just want to say that I am majorly impressed that you guys guessed my profession. I am indeed a lawyer. After your last small council episode, I think I'm going to finally follow my dreams and specialize in fantasy law. I know you guys are looking for sponsors, so why not start with Listwack and Listwack Fantasy Lawyers? Here are a few short jingles you can read on the podcast. Did White siege your fort? We'll take him to court. Send a raven to Listwack and Listwack Fantasy Lawyers. The Night King's a ruckus? We'll bring him to justice. Call Listwack and Listwack Fantasy Lawyers. Bad Red Priestess Readings? We'll file a few pleadings. Call Listwack and Listwack Fantasy Lawyers. Did Sansa Stark outwit you? We'll make her acquit you. Don't end up like Littlefinger. Call Listwack and Listwack Fantasy Lawyers. Royal Family Dysfunction? We'll file an injunction. Protect your throne with Listwack and Listwack Fantasy Lawyers. Throw a child from a tower? You need real legal power. Learn the things we'll do for a not guilty verdict at Listwack and Listwack Fantasy Lawyers. The Queen blew up your sept? She'll pay her debts. Discover the justice of the seven by hiring Lisswack and Lisswack fantasy lawyers. Valyrian steel-tongued attorney Sir Kenneth Liswag, charges one golden dragon per hour, but to keep on on retainer, you'll need a minimum of one satchel with an indeterminate amount of coins, ideally tossed on his desk, accompanied by the phrase, this should be sufficient. Sir Kenneth reserves the right to cut said satchel open with a dagger to see if enough coins come cascading out. Past verdicts are not guarantees of future results, especially in cases involving prophecy. Cheers to a very profitable partnership, Ken L.
1: So Ken didn't tell us what type of law he practices. I really want to hope it's it's civil and it's it's not anything to do with criminal law. Could you picture him like having, he's sitting writing this like at his desk. He's probably billing somebody hours. He's got somebody in prison. He's like, oh, don't worry, don't worry. I'm I'm, I'm writing the appeal right now. I'm writing it right now. And he's typing this up. So, Ken, please let us know. But I hope there's nobody in jail waiting for you to come save them. And you're writing your fan fiction about a fantasy law office. But uh, we might need some legal advice sometimes. It'll be good to have you on our retainer.
0: Yeah, I've been imagining Ken uh, sitting there uh, doodling little dragons on a yellow notepad. And then the judge is like in court. Mr. Yeah. Mr. Liswack, cross-examination. Huh? <laughs> the two Utes. Yeah, the two Utes. Thanks, Ken, for everything you do. Uh, you're amazing. Next up, we have one from Matt B., uh, who writes in, I'm going to break the fourth wall a bit here, but all this time, I assumed Samuel Tarley was a historian of Game of Thrones, that George R. R. Martin had projected himself into the plot, and we'd end the series realizing that A Song of Ice and Fire was Sam's poetic retelling of the post-Roberts Rebellion era through a book laying around at the Citadel Library. But then I wondered... Why would the humble and self-deprecating Samuel Tarly depict himself as a white-slaying, then-killing professor among peasants? Because what if it isn't Sam telling us this story? What if it's Gilly? Gilly was already taught to read and write by Shireen, so she has the capacity. She absolutely idolizes Sam, which would explain why she writes the history of Westeros with the perspective that Sam and his buddies are the heroes. The mighty underdog Sam killed the first white. He killed the then. He cured Grayscale, He discovered John's true heritage. What a dreamboat. George R.R. Martin didn't project his image into this so he could feel like a hero. No, he took it a step further. He projected a girl that idolizes his projection. Some fourth wall breaking 4D chess is going on. We're basically being told a story through the private bedside journal of a girl writing about her crush. I wrote this before episode three. So if she dies tonight, this is scrapped. But if she lives, thanks for reading. Matt B. Yeah, Matt
1: B. We're pretty, pretty sure she lives and. And I like this. I'd always assumed it was going to be Sam, but she's right. Sam, if anything, he's honest about his shortcomings. You know, if you asked him after the battle, he'd say, oh, I didn't perform too well. I, I, I didn't come to protect John. So he would not try to make it look like he was out there just, just killing it. You know, he'd make it look like he was lucky to survive. And next battle, he'll hide in the crypts. But Gilly, she doesn't know the truth about Sam here. She knows him as the single gallant uh, black brother protecting her up north and slaying a White Walker. So it makes complete sense. I really liked this take and it was something I
0: hadn't even thought of. Thanks, Matt, for your email. And uh, next up, we have one from Wendy. She says, watching Jamie Lannister fight the other night, I thought about his quote, I'm not the fighter I used to be. Shame. But this is mostly because his dominant hand was chopped off, right? Wouldn't he still be just as unstoppable as the cocky golden lion he used to be, if not more so, if he could still use that arm to Mm -hmm. wield a weapon? Now he has this mostly useless golden hand. If Kyburn could design the scorpion, if Sam could cure Jorah of greyscale, if people in this world can build castles and ships and wheelchairs, why not put together an epic battle axe or sword of some kind that could be attached to his insanely rich knight's golden arm? I think a Dothraki-style sickle blade attached to his golden hand with a sword or Mm -hmm. dagger in the other would make him unfuckwithable. I'm sure I'm far from the only one who's thought of this, but I just now thought of it, and it's blowing my imaginative mind a bit. Thoughts? Criticisms? Thanks for all your hard work. I really love listening to y'all. Wendy.
1: Uh, So, Wendy, Wendy and anyone else who's listened to the podcast long enough, uh, this is Gene's last email he would ever choose this is ones that jean's go why are we gonna clue this i fought for this one because i said you know what gene the audience they like different things and i like this one i think it's kind of funny it's completely sense they embedded dragon glass in everything from the outside of the castle to the obstacles they made weapons why wouldn't she embed some dragon glass in that hand it's a clenched fist he can't hold the sword with it it's not even an open hand that he could use it to support the blade. It's just swinging out there. Why not make that a useful asset in battle, or put a shield on it? Maybe a dragon glass, uh, like some kind, of, like a Wolverine. You give him like four or five pieces of dragon glass. I, I know they wouldn't do it, but I think it would have been cool, and it was a lost opportunity.
0: I think it's more of a decoy. So if a white bites your hand, you're like, ha ha, mm-hmm. not really a hand. I just love that Wendy included the phrase. I'm sure I'm far from the only one who's thought of this. I'm going to start using that at work all the time. Like, Hey guys, I'm sure I'm (laughs) far from the only one who's thought of this, but what if we return to advertising in the phone book? Huh? Like it. I like it. Thanks, Wendy, for your email. Uh, Next up, we have a more somber one from Jack B uh, from Baltimore. He says, I was left thinking only about the characters that had fallen. In particular, this battle saw an end to the house Mormont a great and honorable family that has occupied Bear Island for a long time. With Jorah and Lyanna falling in battle as they did, their house is now gone entirely. But this made me think of all the other houses that have been eliminated as well. Including last night's events, the eliminated houses now include House Mormont, Umber, Martell, Frey, Tyrell, Bolton, Baelish, and Baratheon. Although I expect that Gendry will have his true name honored and lose the bastard title by the time the season ends if he survives thereby reinstating one of the great houses of the Seven Kingdoms. I believe House Mormont stands apart from these other families as the most honorable and just. Jaor, Jora, and Lyanna all embodied what it meant to be dutiful. They fought bravely, without fear, every time they picked up a weapon. They made sacrifices for others, they defended the north, and they showed how even a small house could have the biggest impact. Of all the ways houses have been eliminated on this show, the Baratheons and Martells fighting inwardly, Littlefinger, the Freys and Boltons paying for their betrayals, and the Tyrells and Umbers being massacred, House Mormont was the only one to go down in the name of a just cause. They personified the Northern spirit and what it meant to fight with honor, even Jorah, who had spent years atoning for his past mistakes. In the end, it was hard to watch them fall, but under the circumstances, it was amazing to watch this house triumph, even in their dying moments. There's no way the North will ever forget this family, and their ferocious spirit thanks for reading and putting so much effort into each podcast it comes from jack b uh
1: you, you said that there's no way the north forgets this i disagree with you who's left in the north in in a hundred years everybody's going to be dead and then it goes back to what was it snarks grumpkins and you know it becomes a thing of myth people aren't going to remember it in i'll tell you in 200 years people are gonna be like yeah right okay a couple hundred thousand whites came down, overrun Winterfell. Bullshit, that didn't happen. The North will forget really quickly. And that's because there's nobody left. The whole caste system is just devastated. Who can man these castles? And you remember when you were, when they were trying to rally up their bannermen, that it was, we have supported your family for a thousand years, 500 years, all that's lost. And it, it's sad because you know, nobody's left to remember it.
0: Now from a very touching email uh, to some very angry emails, Uh, we had a slew of people who were very upset with this episode and with us, starting with uh, listener John Funderburg. He says, I was really looking forward to listening to your podcast and discussing all the great moments and visual masterpiece we just witnessed that's never been performed in the history of television. We just witnessed a culmination of eight seasons of White Walker Threat to Humanity, totally destroyed. And what does your podcast talk about? Your military expertise as a sergeant? Really? are you really trying to put your army dig latrines foxholes experience to a writing staff that took years to put this together? How much hubris are you capable of? I don't want to hear your shallow military expertise. I want to hear about Game of Thrones. And for you to make the first podcast and decimate the storyline so you can talk about your military knowledge is asinine. My nephew, who actually graduated from West Point, said what they accomplished and the logistics in that short amount of time was nothing short of phenomenal. He also said that the tactics used is both supported by and used by ancient generals like Alexander the Great. I can't believe after the greatest exhibition of Visual Masterpiece, you took an entire podcast to destroy it with your military knowledge. We want to celebrate the episode, not hear what you would do differently. I guess this is the highs and lows of podcasting, because if you had a managing producer, they would have prevented this huge mistake. John Funderburg. John,
1: I love you. I wrote you back and said, I love your passion. I started off by saying, hey, I don't want to oversell myself. I was a buck sergeant. Yes, I graduated the sapper leader course. I did instruct a summer at West Point, but I said, I'm not a general. And you said your nephew said, this is all hooey. This is bad. You might want to talk to him if your nephew existed, because most of what we talked about there in the strategic portion came from two sources. Okay. One was the Battle of Winterfell, the tactical analysis. It was in Wired magazine. Uh, and today I was going back and forth DM with the author of it, who's angry staff officer on Twitter. If you want a military expert in strategy, it's him. The other one we used was on forces.net. It was called the siege of Winterfell, a military strategic look. So these two sources are very reputable. They're much more than me, my humble E5. So I, that's not a hubris, but you have experts here. As well as we had an instructor at West Point currently write in and say that these two breakdowns were spot on. So, I don't, but I don't think, did I try to portray that I was some expert?
0: I mean, listen, you're no Air Force junior ROTC cadet commander like me, but I think that you uh, were just presenting. Look, look, it's all a bit of fun. I think that's the important part was that people are like, why'd you waste 20 minutes doing that? Because it was fun. (laughs) <laughs> that's why we did the instacast we, we you know we reacted to the episode we talked about how much we loved it. even on the deep dive I talked about production notes uh, we talked about you know complaints and explained why maybe they weren't valid. Uh, and here we are with with your mail Tom so if we haven't earned 20 minutes so big D can give me a military boner. I don't know what we've earned.
1: Come on John, don't take yourself too seriously. We don't I don't take my military experience too seriously and that's why I gave you a disclaimer in the beginning. But go to the experts and we'll include the links in the uh, in the show notes like we did the previous one. Go check them out. I'm not I'm not the expert here.
0: Now, John wasn't the only person that was upset (laughs) with this episode. Uh, Listener Benjamin from Melbourne, Australia wrote in, if Weiss and Benioff wrote Game of Thrones from season one, none of the Starks would have died. Game of Thrones has become a fairy tale TV show where characters can transport to different parts of the battlefield at will. Even if characters are surrounded by enemies, they will survive. There are no consequences. It would have been better if Jon had battled the White Walker generals instead of the Ice Dragon at the end. Other Valyrian sword wielders could have come to his aid. Jorah, Jaime, Brienne, and even the Hound had a dragonglass axe. If the Night King actually had a chance to talk with Bran, if Bran did something other than play Raven Drone 3000, we saw last season that they kept a white in a wooden box to show Cersei, but now dead Stark kings could break through stone crypts Walder Frey's promises are more credible. Death to Samuel Tarly, and a dragonglass arrow to the story writers of this episode. Giants 2, Winterfell Gate 0, NASA, black holes are the darkest things in the universe. HBO, hold my beer. Keep up the great works, guys. Benjamin from Melbourne, Australia.
1: So I want to address the first point that he makes, that if the the Double Ds had been writing the show since season one, that no Stark would be dead. I think we would have had one or two deaths, but there's no way they kill Ned at the end of season one. I'm trying to think back to the last death that really surprised me. And the, the only one I can come up with is Hodor as the last one. When's the last time you were surprised?
0: I was surprised by the Night King's death. Oh, yeah. The, okay. I mean, prior to this episode?
1: <laughs> yeah. Prior to this. Yeah. That's what prior to this episode.
0: I was surprised by Jojen's death, but that was you know the same episode. So
1: my thing is this. We're expecting all these deaths because that's what the show has been. Maybe that's not what the show is now. Yeah, we're expecting this bittersweet ending. What if half these people are still alive? What if these deaths never come?
0: I'm just imagining in season one, you know, when Ned Stark is on the executioner's block and then Ilian uh, Payne like pulls off his face and it's Arya. It's like run, dad. And then he grabs a rope like Robin Hood, uh, Prince of Thieves and scales up to the top of the sept. That's what we'd be watching.
1: Yeah, it would have been a very different show. Not that we want to talk negative about the show, you know.
0: Yeah, if anybody's going to tear apart the show, it's other listeners like Troy Rainey, who said uh, the killing of the Night King could not have died in a more stupid way, short of Theon grabbing his leg as he holds the Night King back for Jon to come stab him. Actually, this would have been a better ending than what they gave us. After eight seasons, we got a guy walking slowly to a cripple boy and getting stabbed by someone (laughs) jumping out of nowhere. (laughs) <laughs> I felt like I was watching an AMC show instead of an HBO show. That being said, I love you guys and I can't wait to hear your take on the deep dead. And that came from Troy who wrote PS Gene. Can we get a full game of Thrones cry count? I have to know dude." Troy. If I go back to season one when they're kids literally opening scene, you see the children. I'm like, oh, I started crying immediately. I'm a fucking mess with the show. I don't know what the deal is.
1: No, I got to tell you, I came up with one that would have been much worse and I was expecting it fearfully. I was keeping track of Arya as the episode went on because I knew we were missing her, that she had run out of the room once Melisandre told her, you know, you'll you'll close many brown, green, and blue eyes. As the Night King is approaching Bran, I'm like, fuck, please do not be Arya in disguise. Please do not. I kept picturing like a slow motion, like he flips off Bran out of the, out of the, the chair, flips it off, pulls out the cat's paw, and stabs him as he's coming in. I was like, please don't do that. So I will take Spider Monkey Aria jumping over or out of the tree or however she got there. There's a lot of worse ways. And I, I can't even
0: imagine what AMC would have done.
1: But it, it would not be anything near the quality of this. So, so don't demean HBO like that.
0: And finally, one last angry email uh, came in from Dave, who said, uh, today, I caught up with episode three deep dive and felt deflated with your critical review of pretty much every scene gutted. It was the greatest 82 minutes of TV broadcast that I have ever witnessed, and all my friends and colleagues feel pretty much the same way, and now after listening to your podcast, I feel deflated. What's most disappointing is when you compare this with how you guys orgasmed over Westworld, which in comparison is far too complicated and pretty shit. I was really excited to listen to the deep dive, but I switched you off almost 30 minutes in because you were depressing me. Listen to the last 25 minutes. A couple hours later, to see if you got any better, because I thought I should give you the benefit of the doubt. Anyway, keep up the good work, but not so negative, Dave.
1: Obviously, he's never heard the American Gods podcast, <laughs> or he's, he's 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 never heard Taboo. What did we say that was negative? We were having fun with the strategy, and we—if you want a show that is just going to. Oh my God, it was so great. Oh, wasn't it great? Yeah, it was great. Come on, we're talking about it like normal people do. Yeah, it was a fucking kick-ass episode. It was historic. I don't think I've been that excited for a television show since the the finale of Seinfeld. You know, But I don't know what you expected. Gene said, I cried.
0: And you're turning that into a negative? Yeah, I I called it a visual masterpiece. And (laughs) interesting point, Dave, is Big D and I, when we were recording... Uh, before I read all the criticisms that we responded to, I said, now here's some listener criticisms uh, that came from listeners like Ken L, uh, like oh, yes. uh, at GR Copel." And at the end of that, Big D's like, hey, mention that this wasn't our criticisms. It was criticism that came from the listeners. And I was like, I already, I already said that. He's like, yeah, but remind him again. Let's just be safe. We don't want to seem like we're being too negative. I mean, Big D, listen though, Dave is a regular listener. Like This guy is generally excited to hear our takes on it. I would estimate that, if anybody's listened to us through movies, Westworld and Game of Thrones, we're talking hundreds of episodes, you're bound to not like one. So Dave, mm-hmm. stick with it. Like, it's not, we're not going to, uh, you know, I think that you've got a personal attachment to this episode. And I got to say, again, I, I've had this conversation with several people about episode three uh, of season eight. Uh, this is very good TV. <laughs> yeah. Do I think it's, did I like it as much as Reigns of Castamere? No. Did I like it as much as Hardhome? No. Did I like it as much as Battle of the Bastards? No. Is it one of my top 10 episodes of Game of Thrones? Yes. Did I enjoy it? A ton. I thought it was really, really, really good. Uh, But we did want to address some of the things that people are saying online, because if you go online, you will notice that there is a very mixed uh, reaction to the Battle of Winterfell.
1: And one thing, when we started the podcast, I said, I always want us to be honest and truthful to who we are. We don't ever take a side. We don't have a hot take. It's what we think. But I think we did it to ourselves because we started off the episode where we were talking about now that we've had 24 hours. And I said something about Samuel Tarley, which was negative, which some people didn't like. We talked about the darkness. I talked about the plot pacing a little better. So it could have been, seemed like we were saying something negative, but this was coming from a gushing Instacast. And Dave, I love you. Thank you for your passion for the show and this podcast. I, I seriously appreciate you writing in that we disappointed you and you still listened to us for 30 minutes.
0: All right, Dave, thanks for writing in. Uh, we have a couple um actuallys and they're mostly aimed at me. Uh, the first one comes from Ben Emanuel. He says, uh, hey, guys, when you're estimating the White Walker numbers during the deep dive, I thought to myself, uh, actually, why are we assuming that Craster babies continue to grow like in real life? Surely the dead stay as they were when they were converted. I can't see them bothering with eating and growing like normal. Is there any evidence that the dead progress, even though they are thousands of years old in some cases? Does that mean some of them fight like babies and some like old men? And that comes from Ben Emanuel. So Ben, I looked into this. And what's interesting about the whole White Walker phenomenon is we do see the Night King take one of Craster's babies. He touches him. His eyes turn blue uh and we assume yes okay this is a white walker but it's never really documented if they grow up what they eat how they live and i think that's a complaint that a lot of people watching the show had was we want to know more about the white walkers they wanted in this final season to have this mystery unraveled how did the white walkers come about we know how the night king came about he was made by the children of the forest but how does he pass this on uh is there some sort of a white walker school why do they look like old people and have long white hair nobody seems to know and it's just kind of one of those mysteries
1: they can they can add that onto my dragonglass class you remember i wanted from last episode what does dragonglass do so here's my thing if the process of converting someone to a white walker were to freeze your progress right like ben is suggesting why would the night king choose to convert babies what's he going to do with 13, 14 Craster baby White Walkers? Wouldn't you convert them at the point you want them? Maybe let them grow till they're 15, 20, 25. Then you convert them if it freezes.
0: Yeah, you want to convert those supple young bodies. You don't want babies. That's disgusting. There was no babies riding horseback. That would look weird. But the prevalent thinking seems to be that the person that you're converting has to be alive, that they're not you know, the, yeah. the, at the time of conversion, because otherwise, why have whites just have a 100,000 White Walkers? Now you got a serious fucking problem. So the White Walkers are imbued with a certain magic. They control their own whites. And so they are a different sort of thing. Uh, but what they are is not quite sure. They're an ancient magic that is kind of gone awry. All right, thanks, Ben, for your um, actually. Uh, we have another um, actually, uh, from Daniel from Sydney, Australia. He says, hey, guys, love the podcast. You're making the last season of Game of Thrones much more enjoyable. You get so much right, but quick ahem. Uh, actually, in the Instacast, you said Arya slept with Podrick when she was, in fact, intimate with Gendry. An easy mistake I make myself, but I had to call it out. That's from Daniel in Sydney, Australia.
1: I, th- I think what makes it worse is that you set the whole conversation up about pairs that love each other? It wasn't just sex, it was love and they belong together in the bond. So then when you mixed them up, it made it even more of a fuck up.
0: So when I realized that I'd fucked it up, I went onto Twitter and I tweeted about it. I'm like, this'll fix it. I'll just tweet about it. And then I was like, wait a minute. 70,000 people listening to the podcast. I've got like 500 Twitter followers. I'm like, oh, maybe they'll spread the word. I don't know. So, as these, you know, so all week long, I just kept getting them. And then somebody on YouTube was like, ah, oh, this fucking guy, he fucked it up. You know, it's not Gendry, it's Pod. And I went on, I was like, hey guys, Gene here. Uh, you know, thanks for pointing it out. And they're like, oh, you sorry, son of a bitch. Your life must be hell this week. I'm like, yes, yeah, it's, it's not great. But thanks everybody for writing in. Again, it's, All these corrections, all these criticisms, just means to me that you are listening and listening very closely. And yeah, I just I appreciate it. And we will fuck up on the Instacast. I apologize, but it's late. We just watched the episode. In this case, as one person on YouTube described it, Gene's probably shell shocked. I mean, yeah, I was fucking a crying mess. Then I have to come on here and you know try to act like I am intelligent. Mistakes happen.
1: Yeah, get in front of a mic and record yourself talking for about an hour and a half. You are going to say some things that are factually incorrect
0: yeah donnie yeah all right uh that's enough of emails big d do we have any voicemails this week
1: oh boy do we and we had to go through the same uh you know real strict cutting there's so much good stuff so we have cut it down to the four best thank you to everyone who called in but we are limited by time and and the first one we have is chad from houston
3: hey guys this is chad from houston uh, I just got done listening to the Instacast, and I, I, I was hoping that you'd mention something uh, that you had said after one of the episodes earlier this week, uh, or, or earlier in the season. You had basically said that you hoped that the battle with the dead wouldn't end in some type of a Independence Day, you know, weakness, where you... You know, uh, find the vulnerability and then, you know, the whole army kind of, uh, crumples afterwards. And, and And ultimately that's, that's kind of what we got. I mean, yeah, they did it in a way that we probably weren't expecting. Um, but ultimately that's exactly what happened. And I'm just kind of curious if you were disappointed by that or if because of the way it was done, it kind of uh, made up for it. Um, so anyway like the podcast you guys are doing great uh thanks
0: so i think what the episode was trying to do was emphasize that the night king is a very difficult bastard to kill and so you needed that one lucky shot that one lucky moment but after hearing this voicemail i did think about it for a while and what i really like is the idea of the night king employing the same sort of terror that the terminator does which is this unstoppable force and you keep throwing things at it and it just keeps surviving. You keep fighting back and keeps surviving and you're using, you know, arrows and swords and axes and it's just chopping through people. And I, I hate to rewrite an episode. I was very satisfied with the way this episode went. And Arya is a, is a fitting weapon to kill the night King. But there is, if in an alternate reality, another, outcome i would have really enjoyed is the night king kind of fighting his way through our heroes you know imagine if everybody's trying to stop him from killing bran and he's just cutting through you know the hound jamie brianne john you know and that's where your kill count comes from right so he's he's just this unstoppable force and then you have that one last person uh who kills him unexpectedly Um, or maybe as other people have written in everybody attacks him at the same time right and he's and he it takes five or six of them this union of heroes uh, to take him out. There's lots of ways this could have gone, but by no means do I find Arya killing him unenjoyable. I didn't like the fact that everybody at the same time was backed up against the wall or just about to die. Jon's facing a dragon in the face. jamie has got a you know a white on him, and suddenly poof, everybody's okay because right at the right se- second they all exploded. I, I do don't I do hate those Independence Day endings.
1: But I mean, we, we really didn't have an alternative. There's no practical way that the humans win that fight. It's impossible. You would have needed some magical intervention. So even though it wasn't ideal, I think it was the best of our options other than that all of our living characters being killed. There, there was no other outcome that would have been plausible.
0: Yeah, but a simultaneous explosion.
1: Well, that's what they would. That's what would have happened.
0: Why did the other White Walkers explode?
1: Because he created them. Come on, you're thinking too much. This is a show with dragons. All right. Cut it some slack. So our next voicemail comes from Eric from New Mexico.
2: Hey, guys. This is Eric calling from New Mexico. Really enjoy the podcast. Thank you guys for doing it. It really helps me engage with the
3: show. I'm calling about Game of Thrones. And I just wanted to bring up a scene that really struck me. And that was when Theon was put down by the Night King. They cut back to him a second time. And I didn't really understand why they did that. But I believe that they were showing that Theon was the reason that Arya was to be able to sneak by the White Walkers and get to the Night King. Curious if you guys had any thoughts on that. Thanks again.
2: Take it easy.
0: Yeah, I like this idea because I was wondering what that second shot was. We get Theon, he's got the spear hanging out of him, he's bleeding out of his mouth. And I was like oh man, is he going to grab the Night King's leg? Is he going to pull the spear out of himself and jam the Night King and Theon's the one who kills him? I don't know what was going on there. Are we going to see him turn right then and he be the one that kills Bran? I had no idea what was going on there. I think it is uh, plausible to think that either Theon was a distraction or that kill of Theon gave the Night King just a little too much confidence, right? Just the fact that he saw that last obstacle, he took him out and now there was no one to threaten His victory, he could stop and savor it. And again, echoing back to when the Night King smiles at Daenerys uh, after she blows dragonfire at him, he's showing that he's not all business, that he does enjoy uh, creating this fear, creating this uh, suffering. And so it stands to reason that he would take his time with Bran, thinking that there was no threat to him at that point. I I think there was a significance to the Theon. No, No shot in this show is accidental. Uh, they wanted to emphasize the power of his death.
1: I'd be more likely to believe it if there was some expression on Theon's face, maybe a little, just the beginnings of a smile or an acknowledgement, like a "gotcha." But that he dies in anguish uh, makes me think it was just a, a a situation of opportunity that Arya saw him distracted, and then when she, you know, swung out of her tree swing and jumped to the the Night King, but. Uh, we can believe that the Anza hero all we want. I'm okay with it. The next voicemail we got is from one of our longtime contributors from the Dana Buckler show, Ashley Shafley.
4: Hi, y'all. This is Ashley Shafley calling. I just finished listening to your Instacast, and I wanted to call in. You know, Gene, in response to hit to my small council email last week, talked about prophecy and how prophecy isn't always what we think it is, and fantasy stories like this. And I think we learned that this week with Melisandra. I wanted to just talk briefly about the import of Melisandra's involvement and in her sacrifice. You know, all throughout this series, Melisandra has embodied this idea that magic is real and that faith and magic will save us. And she's paid the highest price for that commitment to both that and the magic within prophecies. You know, with Stannis' fall, the sacrifice of a child, she's had to deal with embarrassment and the issues that come from those sacrifices, yet still she remains pious. And I think that's what's so interesting about the Lord of Light. I think there was a great irony this week that the Lord of Light, who tells us the night is dark and full of terrors, that he wasn't able to remove the terrors. Instead, it took an agent of death. Arya, who serves the god of death, to take out the Night King. And I think that that is really powerful, and Melisandre's acceptance of that is really powerful, because Melisandre has to accept that with a prophecy like Azor Ahai, that it isn't specific, it isn't clear, that what makes a prophecy come to light and be fulfilled is the power and the belief of that prophecy. And I think we learned through this episode that in the show, that Magic is real in some ways, but it's more complicated than that. Belief is magic. Piety and commitment is magic. Sacrifice and accepting of one's destiny is magic. And as a result of that, all of our characters actually wield magic and are imbued with magical powers. And so with the death of Melisandre, we have the death of the stark belief system of what magic is and a removal of magic in the world. Now, we still have dragons. We still have other magical creatures, but Melisandre's death is the death of that old belief system and the death of a reliance on that intangible magic. And I think that sets our characters up for a really interesting conflict because they will have to rely on themselves and not Rolor and not the god of death and not the seven, but them. And I want to say just one final thing. The complaint about um, Arya killing the Night King so early the books are called A Song of Ice and Fire. The show is called The Game of Thrones. The Night King may have a bigger role in the books, but in this, it, they chose to call it A Game of Thrones, and the game has to end, and somebody has to take the throne, and the Night King was never interested in that. So I think it's going to be great. Shout out to Jean for mentioning the thing about the dragons and um, bringing in the Dungeon and Dragons connection, because that was really annoying me on Twitter, so thanks for that. Great show. Love what you guys do. Looking forward to episode four. Bye.
0: Ash, that's an amazing take on the concept of magic. And it led me to really extend that to the characters that survived this battle and these odds. We are in the fantasy genre. Uh, We have seen other things in this fantasy genre, such as Lord of the Rings, that imbue these characters with superhuman capabilities, right? That tell us that there's something special or something looking over them. But it's not necessarily a god looking over them. Um, it's just, it, it's another thing that can kind of explain why it is that these people are special. I, and I almost wish that I didn't watch any HBO behind the scenes stuff, because when I hear an intelligent argument like that, that says, look, maybe their belief systems, their piety, uh, their acceptance of their fate gives them a certain supernatural capability or a certain magic. I'm like, cool. Yeah, I'll buy that. But then you watch behind the scenes and it's like, it, we tried to make John look cool when he ran through <laughs> this thing, and uh, yeah, Jamie's sword is pretty badass. And uh, you know, we like Grey Worm like spin his spear real fast because the actor like doing that, and it just crushes it for me. I think the show has a lot less thought than the book series, and again, it's another line of delineation between the two. I think you're absolutely right that one is a market departure from the other, and we have to appreciate them for them are, what they are. One is deep tv but still tv and the other is quality fantasy novel
1: all right and our final voicemail comes from jonathan from austin texas
2: this is dr j down in austin calling from my boys G and big b and the king b on game of thrones hey this is kind of a theory it's kind of just speculation i don't know but you know, after this went down, after the the Battle of Winterfell went down, I started thinking about all of the the magical creatures that we're, were losing in, in this world and how and I started thinking about back in season one, you know, they talked about magic and dragons and all this stuff that was thousands of years ago and they had evidence of it, but no one had really seen that much of it. And you know, all this big flourish of magic. You got the children of the forest and the Three-eyed raven is anew, and the night king, and the dragons, and the giants, and the flaming swords, and Melisandre, and all this crazy stuff. What if this story is really the story of the ending of all of that? What if somehow the good guys win? Our side wins. Daenerys and Jon sit the throne. But what if the dragons are dead? What if Bran dies? What if Cersei actually succeeds in killing those last vestiges? of the magical world and what we end up with here, the tragedy isn't the game and who sits on the thrones. I mean, I think that's just going to continue. But what if this is the story of the last throes of magic in this world? And at the end of it, it will just be, sadly, people playing this game of thrones and no more of the magic that once was. I don't know. Anyway, just thought that would be something that would be somewhat satisfying to me and thought I'd throw it out there at you guys. Thanks so much for making it all happen Again, I can't imagine how much time it takes you guys to do this. Thank you. All right, boys, have a good night.
0: I'm just imagining the end of the series with Cersei looking out her window, triumphant, and the camera pans out over the towers of King's Landing. And then it goes into this time lapse, and like everything changes. And then you see like things crumble, and then it builds back up again. And in the end, you're just looking at London with like skyscrapers and buses and airplanes. And the whole message of the show is like, once the magic left the kingdom, the seven kingdoms, it just became this world we're in today. Nothing special, just a boring mundane place.
1: Does that mean reign of fire is a prequel (laughs) or it's a sequel to this? That's how the dragon eggs got in the London and the underground. The
0: magic's back. Reign of fire. Oh, oh
1: yeah. Fuck. Yeah. 2020 reign of fire. Game of Thrones. Thank you very much, uh, Jonathan, for calling in. Thank you, everybody who called in. Thank you, everybody who wrote. And thank you, everybody who listened.
0: Holy shit, guys. That was a marathon of emails and voicemails. Uh, We battled hard to decide which ones to pick. And again, all of them were worthy uh, of the pod. If you'd like to catch them all, they're at chatontv.com. Just go to the Game of Thrones section and look in the small council uh, I am doing my best to respond to them as quickly as possible. Be patient. I will get to them, but uh, but we do appreciate each and every one. And sadly, that concludes this week's episode of Shout on TV, Game of Thrones. Uh, be sure to follow us on social media and share with a friend. We're on Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram at Shout on TV. On Facebook, just search for Shad on TV podcast. The website is Shad on TV.com. And if you'd like to write in for the small council, uh, just write in to host at Shad on TV.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, all... 127 or more what we have this week
1: no are you kidding me we cut it down to 20 emails plus a couple chains and five voicemail we had 200 plus emails they're still coming in as we're recording people 5 p.m wednesday that's the cutoff
0: but they're still coming in now yeah they're just getting in early for next week (laughs) yes yeah Again, if you'd like to leave a voicemail, you can hit us up at 914-719-CHAT. We love hearing those as well. Some of them are weirder than you think. Everywhere uh, we find podcasts can be found, including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pandora, Spotify, and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe. And if you stop by iTunes, please leave us a review. That helps the podcast grow. Also, when we're editing late at night and those reviews pop in, it's one of the most entertaining things that keeps you going.
1: Yeah, all all the, all the emails keep us going, all the support. Thank you very much. It's a labor of love. You know, we actually have full-time jobs. Uh, so this is actually our second full-time job, but we do it because we love it. Uh, and the interaction with everybody out there makes it all worth it. So thank you very much for continuing to support us. Uh, it means a lot to us.
0: And if you'd like to support us with a contribution, uh, you can go to com slash PayPal slash Venmo slash Amazon, depending on your payment choice. Uh, you can help us out also by taking a survey at com slash survey. Uh, that helps us understand the kind of sponsors you would like to hear on this podcast. Also, while you're waiting for Sunday's Instacast after episode four of Game of Thrones, you can catch the Shat the Movies. Uh, that's our sister podcast where we cover '80s and '90s movies. This week, we're doing an encore presentation of Conan the Barbarian in honor of Game of Thrones. It's one of the best ones we've done. Uh, I think I was drunk. Uh, Carrie Gross was drunk. Big D's just fucking on fire on this one. It's a it's a great classic. Also, uh, The King B and I just wrapped up our coverage of American Gods. You can find that at ShadonTV.com as well if you are an American Gods fan. If you haven't watched it all, listen to the podcast and go back and watch both seasons. On behalf of my co-hosts, Big D, Dick Ebert, and The King B, I'm Gene Lyons. Be sure to join us on Sunday for our Game of Thrones Season 8 Episode 4 Instacast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.